Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we look at Queen Arwa of Yemen, who was raised to rule with her husband, but when he was incapacitated, she first ruled as his regent, then in his place, as she spent a half a century in power despite attempted revolts and outside incursions. Maps and images for this episode can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And please, if you have a moment, rate us on iTunes and leave a review. This is Season 2, Episode 8, Arwa al-Sulahi, and this is The Almost Forgotten. When Arwa was born in the middle of the 11th century AD, Yemen was no longer a part of Muhammad's large Arab caliphate because Muhammad's large Arab caliphate no longer existed, at least not in its original form. The Muslim world was divided, and the 11th century was a time of major transition. The Abbasid Caliphate, the third and final one to rule most of the region before the Ottomans, had been pushed entirely out of Africa. They still ruled from Baghdad, but really in name only. The Seljuk Turks had taken control of an empire that couldn't defend itself from outside threats. And they were the real power from Transoxiana to Mesopotamia. Damascus, Aleppo, and Mosul were changing hands back and forth between the Arabs and the Byzantines. In Egypt and Western Arabia, the Fatimid Caliphate had been ruling from Cairo since the early 10th century. They were a Shiite dynasty putting them at ideological odds with most of the rest of the Muslim world, including nearby Yemen. Further west, smaller kingdoms ruled over Algeria, and the Almoravid dynasty ruled over southern Iberia, Al-Andalus, as well as Morocco. Speaking of ideological differences, the Byzantine Empire had reached the height of its post-Justinian power and was entering a decline phase, but was still a prosperous and stable state. In 1054 AD, the Church of Rome officially split with the Church of what was called the Roman Empire, which of course had nothing to do with Rome and was based in Constantinople. They had actually been doing things differently for quite a while, but in the midst of some negotiations, both sides excommunicated each other, which kind of put an end to any illusion of unity. In the Latin Christian or Catholic side of the world, the Holy Roman Empire was the biggest power, having been formed by Otto the Great less than a hundred years prior. France was ruled by the Capetian dynasty, who had little power over their dukes and counts. The Normans were about to conquer the Anglo-Saxons in England at the Battle of Hastings, while in Eastern Europe, the Kingdom of Poland and the Kingdom of Hungary had recently been established. Further east, the Kievian Rus reached the height of their power under Yaroslav the Wise, who died in 1054, and were beginning division and decline. China was mostly united, this time under the Song Dynasty, which ushered in significant technological and economic advancements. Northern China was held by the Liao Empire, a sort of Chinese-influenced nomadic dynasty. India was divided. The Chola Empire was being pushed out of power by the Western Chalukya Empire. 
Going east from there, the Pagan Empire was at its height as a sort of precursor to modern Burmese culture, while the Khmer Empire and Srivijaya held sway over much of the rest of Southeast Asia. In the Americas, the Mixtec people were united and strong, and the Toltec people also flourished. The Mississippian culture was on the rise in North America, while the Wari Empire of South America was on the decline. In sub-Saharan Africa, the Ghanaian Empire was still strong in the west, as was the Gao Empire. To the east, the lands formerly ruled by the kingdom of Aksum around Ethiopia were fragmented, which takes us to Yemen. The Aksumites slash Ethiopians no longer held much sway across the Red Sea in Yemen. But there was what we might call a rump state or colonial remnants, still remaining as one of the many groups struggling for ascendancy. And this is the region where Arwa became queen. But before we talk about her, we should probably talk a little bit about Yemen, its history, and what happened just before Arwa came into the scene. Yemen had been a trading center for as long as anyone could remember. Its location along maritime crossroads kept it involved with the larger global powers in antiquity. It was more fertile than the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, too. The Romans called the region Arabia Felix, which could both be translated as Fertile Arabia or Happy Arabia. It was a major part of the spice trade, linking Egypt and through it Europe with both the Horn of Africa and points east, including India. Yemen had been dominated by the Sabaean kingdom, probably biblical Sheba, for much of the Mediterranean's classical antiquity period. The Himyarites were one of their rivals and eventually took power from the Sabaeans, forming the Himyarite kingdom. This dynasty lasted several centuries and eventually converted to Judaism in the 4th century AD. But things took a turn by the beginning of the 6th century. The king had been persecuting Christians, perhaps in an attempt to keep Byzantine influence away, and their neighbors across the Red Sea, the kingdom of Aksum, did not take kindly to this treatment of their co-religionists. The Byzantines had at least some influence, if not involvement, in the subsequent Aksumite invasion of Yemen. The Himyarites were defeated, and Aksum ruled for a brief period before the Sasanian Persians came in. This was the mid-6th century, and this too was not destined to last long. With the rise of Islam, Yemen was one of the first regions to ally with Muhammad in a military and political sense, and people from the region were a part of the great expansion of the caliphate. Yemen was a relatively stable part of the empire, but as the empire fractured, Yemen became the outskirts of the great power rivalries in the Islamic world, reverting back to a status that was familiar. By the start of the second millennium AD, the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate had become the dominant power in Egypt and the surrounding region, while the Abbasid Caliphate was on the decline in Baghdad. Yemen was still at a regional crossroads, but it wasn't like some other border territory that was essential to control in order to keep the empire safe. So it stayed out of most of the fray. Authority in the region fragmented, and it was ruled by several local dynasties with loyalties to the Abbasids. A local religious and political leader named Ali al-Sulahi revolted against his rulers in 1047. He was a Shiite, probably supported by the Fatimids in Egypt, but if not, he was definitely sympathetic to them. When he became king of his small region, 
He formally named his wife Asma as co-regent. He was said to have valued her opinion over that of anyone else. She was more than his queen consort. She was a trusted advisor, a situation which was unlike basically the rest of the world at the time, let alone the Islamic world. He clearly valued her for her intelligence and her abilities, and we know that she was elevated to a formal level of power because she was named in official weekly prayers. This was the first time in Muslim history that a woman had ever been named in a sermon specifically as a leader to be blessed and protected weekly by powers on high. Arwa was born soon after they came to power. She was not their daughter. She was a cousin, but she was orphaned at a very young age. She was sent to live with them and grew up in this household under the tutelage of Asma. By the early 1060s, al-Sulahi had been given support by the Fatimids in Egypt and was officially allied with them as a sort of independent client king. He soon conquered most of Yemen, and the Fatimid approval may have had some help in this, although no sources suggest they sent any actual troops. One of those smaller kingdoms that al-Sulahi had fought with was based in the western city of Zabid. It had been founded a decade or so earlier by the descendants of people from the region of Ethiopia after the collapse of the native kingdom they served. This dynasty, called the Najahid dynasty, is often referred to as a slave dynasty, but it is not entirely clear that they were slaves or even the descendants of slaves when they came to power. It seems that these people of African descent held considerable power before they took over. They certainly could have been the descendants of slaves, but they may have been something more like Greek colonists, except from Aksum, which had previously held significant sway over parts of western Yemen. In order to defeat the Najahid dynasty, al-Sulahi had the king and founder, Najah, killed by an assassin in 1062. He sent a female slave pretending she was a peace offering, but instead, her job was to seduce and poison Najah. It worked, and al-Sulahi soon conquered the city and the surrounding territory. The sons of Najah fled, but they did not forget this event. The Najahids remained in conflict with the Sulahis, even as the latter consolidated power and controlled most of Yemen. In 1066 AD, Arwa turned 17 and was married to Ahmad al-Murakam, the son of Ali al-Sulahi and Asma. Arwa had been groomed to be queen from an early age and raised by Asma. She was likely involved in at least understanding the affairs of state alongside her future husband for most of her young life. By 1067 AD, al-Sulahi had secured Yemen and Fatimid support from Cairo. He gathered a massive caravan to make his way to Mecca to do the Hajj, the pilgrimage to the holy city. According to Fatima Mernesi in the Forgotten Queens of Islam, quote, Ali's caravan was made up of a thousand horsemen, of whom a hundred were of the Salahi family, a force of five thousand Ethiopians, and all the Yemeni princes whom Ali had conquered during his battle for the unification of Yemen, and who had lived since then at his side in the palace at Sana'a. As a security measure, and to make them participants in his scheme, Ali had demanded that the latter accompany him to Mecca, unquote. His wife Asma was also with him, but his son, al-Mukarram, the husband of Arwa, 
remained behind to rule Yemen while he was on the Hajj. On the way there, they stopped for the night at an oasis. There, the sons of Najah snuck into his camp, attacked, and got their revenge, killing him. They also killed most of the leaders of the al-Salahi family and took Asma into captivity. It seems they took control of the caravan because most of the soldiers were from their old dynasty, and they easily won the loyalty of their countrymen, who were probably more than happy to join them. Asma was thrown in prison and given a view of her husband's head on a pike. It took a while for al-Mukarram, back in the capital of Sana'a, to find out the news. And even after he did, he might not have known that his mother survived the ambush. But Asma got word to her son after a year of imprisonment, and he set out to rescue her. With the support of the people of Sana'a, he led a troop of 3,000 cavalry to storm Zubayid, where the Najahids had re-established themselves. He was able to rout the larger force defending the city and take it. Al-Mukarram rushed into the dungeon where she was being held, and the story goes that he had yet to take his helmet off. So when he got there to her cell and greeted her with respect, asking permission before entering, she was like, uh, and he was all, I'm Ahmad, son of Ali. And she was still kind of unsure, going so far as to say, well, I don't know how much you've been around the Islamic world these days, but there's a lot of Ahmad, son of Ali's out there. He lifted his helmet, and she in some way immediately greeted him by calling him the new king. Keeping in mind that she was essentially co-ruler with her deceased husband. This was not just a nice thing to say, it was politically meaningful. The effect on al-Mukarram, according to some sources, was such shock that he became partially paralyzed. They cite the emotional toll of both seeing and rescuing his mother, who he had, until recently, surely thought was killed, and the fact that she proclaimed him as king. But, It's entirely possible that he was injured in the battle, or maybe was ill prior to this moment, and it's just a convenient marker to set down as his illness progressed significantly after this point. Regardless, when they returned to Sana'a, Asma acted as regent. But she wasn't the queen officially, as she had been before. Al-Mukarram was invested by the Fatimid Caliphate as the actual king, and that is how it was kept. Asma was shown loyalty by her people, so while al-Mukarram had other cousins who might be able to rule in his stead, Asma was so well respected that there aren't any records of rebellion. Ruling Yemen became even more of a family affair than it was when al-Sulahi was alive. Al-Mukarram remained the monarch, although it is said that not only did he have partial paralysis, but he may have been bedridden. So his actual influence might have been very limited. Asma brought in his wife, her daughter-in-law, Arwa, to help her in affairs of state. Asma had been preparing her for this since she was little, and by 1067, Arwa was likely fully integrated into the decision-making process. From the Forgotten Queens of Islam, quote, Queen Asma created a veritable tradition of a couple sharing power, raising her son, al-Mukarram, in the idea that a wife is a force that it would be absurd to leave to stagnate in the shadow of the harem. And al-Mukarram made his wife, Arwa bint Ahmad al-Sulahiya, an associate and partner, For another two decades, Arwa helped rule as co-regent to her mother-in-law. 
But in 1087, Asma died. Soon after, al-Mukarram totally removed himself from public life, although he remained the nominal ruler, with Arwa as his acknowledged regent. Eventually, she became known as Al-Sayida Al-Hura, or just Sayida Hura, which is more of a title than a name. She isn't the only person in history with this title. There was a Moroccan queen, a corsair allied with Hayred and Barbarossa, profiled in Season 1, Episode 9, who was called that as well. But it is basically translated in English as Noble Lady Who Is Free and Independent, or The Female Sovereign With No Superior Authority. It is a testament to how well-respected she had become, and probably how involved she had been in the affairs of state, that this didn't seem to cause any major revolts among the ruling family. At this point, though, the dynasty probably didn't control as much of Yemen as when al-Salahi was alive. They certainly were still the power around Sana'a, but their rivals, the Najahids, were in control of some territory. Arwa decided that, perhaps in order to solidify her grip on the reins of power, she needed a military victory, or at the very least, she wanted some revenge on the man who had killed her father-in-law, and if you believe that Armokaram wasn't ill until he rescued Asma, the man who had also been responsible for her husband's poor health. First, she moved her capital from Sana'a to the city of Jibla, which was thought to be more secure. Jibla was closer to the Najahids, which may have been part of the reason for this move. But she probably also felt that she could be away from some of the court intrigues in Sana'a. She might have brought with her only those ministers and advisors that she truly felt she could trust. She moved her treasury and al-Mukarram there to keep them both safe. Then, she set a trap for Sayyid ibn Najjar, the son of Najjar and head of the Najahids, who may by this time have taken Zubayad back after al-Mukarram's raid to rescue mother. It's a little confusing, but it's not that important. Suffice to say, Arwa was in charge of Sana'a at this point, and the Najahids were still pretty strong. Arwa arranged to have rumors spread of disloyalty among her allies, and that her move to Jibla was done in order to try and find a secure place without the bulk of her army. She sent off most of her troops, which induced the Najahids to attack, but she was ready and defeated them outside of Jibla in 1088 AD. Sayyid ibn Najah was killed in the battle, and his wife was captured. In a final act of revenge, Arwa had the wife imprisoned, with a view of her husband's head on a pike, just like what Asma had to suffer. Over the next few years, she began a campaign of conquest, taking back some of the territory that had been lost before al-Sulahi was killed. She was not the leader of her army, she was the queen of the country, but it was her efforts that expanded the Sulahi territory. Around 1091, her husband finally died. While it didn't necessarily impact her reign inside of Yemen, as she had been ruling for some time already, it did seem to have caused some consternation in Cairo. The Caliph of the Fatimids sent envoys who strongly suggested that Arwa needed to marry so at the very least Yemen could have a male leader. It's not clear whether the Caliph was using this as an excuse to marginalize her influence and also wanted her to shrink into the background like a typical queen of the era, or just wanted a figurehead so there was a man they could name as a king. 
The good news for Arwa was that they did have a good candidate that would allow her to continue to rule, and wasn't under the thumb of Cairo. His name was Saba ibn Ahmad, and he was al-Mukarram's cousin. Saba had been designated as an heir by al-Mukarram, but the nature of this inheritance is disputed by the sources. Some believe that al-Mukarram essentially gave Saba the dawa, or spiritual power to lead the faithful, while bequeathing the secular and governmental power to his wife Arwa. Others say he gave Saba everything, with the understanding that once al-Mukarram died, Arwa would marry Saba and they would rule together, the way the dynasty usually operated. Arwa did indeed marry Saba, although, again, the sources conflict on the exact nature of this. She may have done so pretty soon after al-Mukarram's death, in order to take the initiative and solidify her rule. Other sources suggest she rejected him, to the point that there was almost civil war. But she decided to go forward with the marriage in the end, after she was convinced by her brother it was her best option. It probably helped that the caliph in Cairo supported it, might have threatened action if she didn't, and offered a huge dowry. While we don't know exactly what convinced her to marry Saba, there is something that is absolutely clear. First, we know she married him. But second, and more importantly, even though she remarried, from the time of Asma's death to Al-Mukarram's death, and for the rest of her own life after that, Arwa was fully in charge as the Queen of Yemen. What Saba brought, besides legitimacy in the eyes of outsiders, was military leadership. He was an effective general and helped push the Najahids further back. He probably led the army while Arwa continued to rule over the political and possibly religious spheres. The Sulahis once again became the dominant force in Yemen. But right around 1100 AD, when Arwa was in her early 50s, Saba died. At this point, Arwa had been de facto independent from Cairo for long enough and the Fatimid dynasty was weakened enough by internal conflict that we don't hear of demands for her to marry again. She had also lost the leader of her army, and some of the tribes under her rule began the rumblings of what would turn into internal revolt and civil war. Control of Sana'a, which had been part of Arwa's kingdom but was directly administered by her husband Saba, was given to a tribal leader. Now, Sana'a was no longer the capital, but it was still a very important city. The new city leader called himself Sultan. And while he didn't necessarily declare true independence from Arwa and the Salahi dynasty, she now exerted little to no influence over the city's affairs. Relations with the Fatimid dynasty deteriorated further, as it had weakened significantly. The Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem was established in 1099, and began to assert control in the Levant. The Fatimids attempted to respond, but were defeated in several battles near the city of Ramla, located west and slightly north of Jerusalem. They then saw Baldwin, the king of Jerusalem, invade Egypt. He reached Pelusium, the city on the eastern Nile Delta, where Perdiccas first tried to cross the river and defeat Ptolemy. He razed the city to the ground in 1117, but died soon after, probably of food poisoning after eating some rotten fish. The Fatimids were spared from potential conquests, but they were not in good shape. Internal strife preceded these external threats, 
and Arwa was probably safe to mostly ignore them. At least, she thought she was. In 1119, conflict between Yemen and Cairo seems to have returned, despite her loyalty to the caliph through the succession conflicts. The caliph sent a man named Najib al-Dawla to take Yemen from Arwa. He brought an army with him in an attempt to bring this co-religious but not altogether perfectly behaving client kingdom under more direct control. At least, that's one version of the story. The other version is a little friendlier to the Fatimid dynasty. It goes like this. Najib was sent, perhaps even at the request of Arwa, to help defend the Sulahid dynasty against their longtime enemy, the Najahids. And he did this for a few years, driving them back and helping secure the region. Whichever story is the real one, we know that he was soon Arwa's enemy. Whether he had always been this, or control of her army had gone to his head and he attempted a coup, he did foment an uprising against the queen in the early 1120s. But Arwa was able to easily defend herself against it. According to a story in Mahmud al-Kamal, quote, When Najib al-Dawla declared war on al-Hura with the idea of taking power away from her, she received so much support from the majority of the emirs of the country that Najib al-Dawla had to renounce his mission, unquote. He died on his way back to Cairo. They hadn't bet that Arwa, despite being about 70 years old, was not only in power, she was incredibly popular as queen. Not long after, there was another succession crisis in Cairo, which Arwa gladly fueled, considering the difficulties the Fatimid dynasty had recently given her. The caliph died in 1130, and his cousin al-Hafiz took control. But he had a son right before he died, al-Tayyib. Hello, crisis. She supported Tayyib, and because the caliph in charge was the rival, this essentially ended ties between the Fatimids and Yemen at least with the Sulahi dynasty. There were other Yemeni tribes with some amount of independence who sided with Hafiz. And in the same way that Arwa supported Tayyib to distance herself and gain some independence from Cairo, these guys sided with Hafiz to try to get the support of Cairo and to separate themselves from Arwa and the Sulahi dynasty. Because there wasn't anyone to support Tayyibi, Arwa became his leading proponent. It is possible that he escaped to Yemen. He may have also been killed by Hafiz. Either way, Arwa essentially became the leader of the supporters of this caliph over Hafiz, the leader of a branch of Islam. Both the supporters of Hafiz and those of Taibi were Ismaili Shiites, and while Taibi did not seem to make it very far, his sect did well. Today there are no Hafizi Shiites. That branch died out when the Fatimid dynasty finally collapsed in 1171. But Taibi Ismaili Shia is still around today, thanks in part to Arwa championing its survival. According to Taibi tradition, Al-Taib survived in hiding in Yemen under Arwa's protection. But even if he didn't, she protected his tradition. She allowed the religious leadership to be held by someone other than her. What this did is allow it to survive beyond her own dynasty, unlike the Hafizi sect. Once the caliphs aligned with Hafiz were gone, so was his religion, not so with the Taibi. In fact, because Yemen was such a fulcrum of maritime trade, 
they had strong relationships with the folks in western India. And if you want to learn more about the sea routes in the northern Indian Ocean in the Middle Ages, do listen to the episode on Paramasawara from season one. After the end of the Salahi dynasty, the leadership of Taibi Shia eventually made its way to western India, especially in the modern state of Gujarat. Today, while there may be a million Taibi Shiites that live in Yemen and the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, more live in India than anywhere else. By this point, Arwa had ruled Yemen in one form or another for a half a century. She had retaken territory lost after her father-in-law was killed and moved the capital from Sana'a to Jibla. Speaking of Jibla, she built herself a nice palace there, and she decided to rebuild the old palace into a mosque. The new palace was built on the highest point in the city, no doubt for purposes of security. The palace still stands today, in pretty decent shape, but it's technically in ruins. There is an effort to restore it, but with the current conflict in Yemen, it hasn't really taken off. As for the mosque, that's still very much in use today. It's painted a bright white, with a single red and white minaret rising above it. Her tomb remains in the mosque, a silver and gold covered mausoleum, that became a place of pilgrimage over the years. The entire complex, the mosque and the palace, are being considered by Yemen as a nominee for a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Speaking of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, the old city of Sana'a is officially one of them, and the great mosque there, said to be constructed while Muhammad was still alive, is part of that. In 1130 AD, Arwa helped restore and renovate the building, one of the oldest continually operating mosques in the world. In 1138, Arwa died, after ruling Yemen in some form or another since her husband's paralysis in 1067. She was co-regent under her mother-in-law for about 20 years, sole regent for another 15, and queen regnant for close to 40 years. Today she is known as, besides Saida al-Hura, or female leader who bows to no one, as the Little Queen of Sheba. This is a nod to the Biblical Queen of Sheba, who is thought to have been the ruler of the Kingdom of Saba in Yemen. After her death, the Sulahi dynasty effectively ended. She had four children, but living until she was about 90, she outlived them all. The dynasty was able to hold on to a few fortresses here and there, but were eventually pushed out of the way. One of the rival clans pushed them out, but a larger foe came after the fall of the Fatimids. The Abuyid dynasty, a Kurdish Sunni dynasty led by Saladin, which ruled Egypt and had its capital in Cairo at the time, conquered Yemen in the 1170s as it expanded. Apparently the reason they turned their attention to Yemen was so that their rivals couldn't flee to the region and establish themselves there. Turning again to Fatima Mernesi, she sums up the life of Arwa thusly, Quote, Yasin al-Khatib al-Amri, a 19th century historian, describes Arwa as a sovereign who perfectly understood how to manage the affairs of state and of war, and a modern author calls her an intellectually gifted and accomplished woman. For Zarqali, Arwa was an efficient queen and a matchless administrator. She left some very beautiful architecture and engineering monuments, especially the famous Sana'a Mosque and the Road to Samara. She also took great interest in the setting up of cultural and religious centers and seeing that the scholars and teachers were well paid. 
but above all, she is remembered for her role as a spiritual leader and the service she rendered Shiism in propagating it throughout Asia. Unquote. Arwa was groomed to be queen from birth. It's hard to imagine that Al Salahi and Asma didn't see her as their son's potential future wife from the moment they adopted her. She ruled effectively and was popular enough among her people to defy outside influence and the tradition that would reduce her role because of her gender. She built monuments in Yemen that are still in use and helped keep alive a sect of Islam that continues even today. She lived up to her adoptive parents' expectations and more and was a powerful queen who left a lasting legacy. Next, we travel east, around the time of Arwa's death, to Southeast Asia to learn about a king who watched the empire he grew up in conquered by outside forces before he stepped up, took control, and brought it to perhaps the zenith of its power. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>